Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali. And today, the podcast just got elevated. I'm talking to one of the all-time greats uh, the game has ever seen. And I won't even waste any attempt to introduce the gentleman. I'll just bring him on. It's uh, Greg Chappell. Hey, Greg, how are you? Hi, Saqib. I'm fine. You? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm actually very excited to be you know, sharing the space with you. And I hope I do some justice by not wasting your time and also represent a lot of fans who will tune in to listen to this because I'm a fan first. And I represent some of these questions, which may not be original, but we'll take a deeper dive into uh, something you know, that you have encountered in your, in your journey in cricket. So we all, know, we all know, you know, the Chapel legend and, you know, like your contribution to the game and you've donned many hats. So I'll just get right into it. Your first series as captain against Clive Lloyd's West Indies is one of the more storied, uh, what do you say, test battles of all time. You know, Fire in Babylon pretty much documented that series as the birth or as the catalyst of the West Indian fast bowling machinery, which was pretty good by then. But then, you know, they saw... Uh, a lot of motivation coming out of that series. So, and this was again a special series for you. You scored like 700 plus runs. You replaced your brother as a captain. So, there's some, you know, of course, emotional nostalgia. Ian is still part of the team. And then uh, you also talk about in the book, Fierce Focus, that the Brisbane pitch was kind of, you know, remade on day two. So, there's a lot going on, you know, in that series. So, how do you look back from your vantage point, what that series meant and how the world sees it? And, you know, Fill us with your, uh, you know, version of, of that series. Yeah, it was a, a fantastic series. We won at 5-1, but there wasn't that much difference between the two teams. I think you had Australia on the one hand, which was a, a mature team that was uh, really just coming into its own at that stage. We'd had quite a bit of success in early uh, 70s, um, starting with a, a drawn series in England in 72. But that was the, the turning point for Australian cricket when we really started to believe in ourselves. We had uh, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson leading our attack. So it was a was a potent attack. Uh, we had Max Walker and uh, Gary Gilmore both played in that series. Uh, Gilmore Moore as an all-rounder uh, and Ashley Mallett was our spin bowler. So we had a pretty mature bowling side and and a very good batting side led by Ian as as captain Doug Walters um, you know myself in that in that lineup so it was a pretty um, pretty mature team the West Indies on the other hand um, you know had Clive Lloyd obviously as a <clears throat> mature player um, but their bowling attack was just emerging and uh, we we saw snippets of what they were going to become <clears throat> during that series, not least of all in Perth, where they bowled um, magnificently. Andy Roberts and Michael Holding in particular, Van Byrne Holder was an experienced member in that bowling attack. But I think it's well documented that Clive Lloyd at the end of that series uh, decided that uh, he had to go home and find a pace bowling attack to match the Australian pace bowling attack well he not only did that but he surpassed the Australian bowling attack with you know four genuine pace bowlers Max Walker and Gary Gilmore were sort of well Max Walker was medium pace and Gilmore was fast medium Um, but the West Indies came back with four genuine fast bowlers but they also had a very potent batting lineup and perhaps the best fielding 
team that world cricket has ever seen to back it up. So uh, it was a, a great series. You mentioned the first test match and uh, Clem Jones, who was the Lord Mayor of Brisbane at the time, had appointed himself as the groundsman uh, and it wasn't his expertise. He didn't produce very good wickets and that was an example of one that began breaking up by the end of the first day and when we arrived at the Gabba on the second morning, the pitch had been remade. I was surprised, to say the least, that Clive Lloyd didn't react more vehemently than he did at seeing it. <clears throat> but perhaps the fact that he'd only captained West Indies maybe three or four times before that uh, meant that he was reasonably inexperienced. Perhaps if it had been a year or two later, he may have reacted differently. But uh, it turned out to be one of the great test matches. We finished up chasing a medium-sized total on the on the in the last innings to win that game. But it probably just gave us the edge to start the series, and then we managed to uh, you know win the key games from that point on. And again, how was it to captain that side? Because your brother had been captain up to that point, and he said to you in that book you mentioned, you know, the time's up, and you will know when your time is up. So, what was that transition like? <clears throat> yeah, it, it was fairly seamless. Uh, obviously, I knew Ian well; um, we'd grown up together, but um, you know, had been in the side for all of his captaincy career. He'd been a very good captain. He'd molded a very good team so I was taking over a, a team that was experienced and experienced at winning and we had a very potent opening bowling pair in Thompson and, and Lily um, Jeff Thompson at that point bowling faster than anybody else that I've seen uh, before or since then uh, sadly a couple of years later he broke a, his uh, shoulder in a fielding accident in a test match in, in Adelaide. And he was never quite the same bowler, particularly from a speed point of view after that. He was still quick. But in the two and a half years he played test cricket before he broke his shoulder, I would say that he was bowling regularly in the high 150s and often in the low 160s. And I haven't seen anyone else do that. Uh, Richie Benno mentioned that uh, Frank Tyson, he, he felt Frank Tyson had bowled some spells similar to Thompson, but not at a sustained level like Tomo did. You know, Thompson was as quick at the end of the day as he was at the start of the day. And I don't think there are too many bowlers that can say that. I remember hearing Michael Holding speak at a function some years ago and somebody asked him the question as to who was the fastest bowler and he said look we were all fast on our day and then there was jeff thompson wow. so he was in a in a class of his own so to inherit a bowling attack like that and a, you know an experienced batting lineup obviously was a, a benefit for me it was a team that didn't need um, a lot of input really it was just a matter of um shuffling the bowlers um and uh, just managing the environment to the best of, of your ability. Uh, Ian was in the team for that series, but he did say to me early on that, look, you know, I won't be interfering, but if you've got any questions, you know where to find me. And I think it was um, 
beneficial for me to know that I had Ian in the background to lean on when required. But to be fair, uh, he didn't uh, interfere. And there must have been a number of times when he bit his tongue, um, seeing me do different things. But uh, he was true to his word and didn't interfere. And I didn't feel the uh, necessity to... Um, to lean on him too much because, as I say, the guys understood their roles um, from time to time, you know, managing some of the, um, uh, you know, the, the strong-willed individuals in, in the team took a little bit of, of effort, not least of all the fast bowlers. But uh, other than that, I, I think it was a, a pretty good series. Um, I, we won the first test match. They won the second test in Perth. And I remember going from Perth to Adelaide and we played a one-day game for some reason or other in the middle of the series. And I don't quite recall what that was about. But um, all I understood was that it was an important game. It wasn't a game that we could afford to take lightly. And I said that to the guys before we played the one-day game because I could feel after Perth that the West Indies were starting to grow in belief. And I just thought that if they won one more game, they may go into the Melbourne Test match with a, you know, with a bit more confidence than they'd gone into the first two Test matches. And we managed to win that one-day game, close, uh, close encounter. And I think that just took them off balance again as we went into the, the Melbourne Test match. And the big difference between the two teams was that we were used to winning, they weren't. And when games got tight, we managed those tight situations better than they did. And that was the only difference in the two teams. Yeah. No, because uh, you unpack quite a lot there. And I had a question in reserve for Jeff Thompson. And uh, you played with him and you said, and I think Rodney Marsh, a lot of folks from that era have said that he's the fastest they've ever seen. So is there any anecdote you want to add here for the listeners? Because that's a very popular barstool conversation. Who is the fastest? And in that era, speed guns weren't there. So, but you've been around a lot. You've seen the Akhthars, the Lees, the Cummins, the Donalds. So what really separates Jeff Thompson, if you want to just elaborate on that, because I'm sure a lot of listenership would die to know why he, you know, that kind of a slinging action still stands the test of time in terms of like sheer pace. Yeah, look, I think uh, I've never had someone analyze it, but um, from my rudimentary understanding of human movement, uh, it was probably the most efficient bowling action ever. Um, it was very side on. It was almost over side on. I've got a photograph in my collection somewhere with Tomo in the delivery stride. His back foot is parallel to the back crease. Um, his, the ball is down behind his back. His upper torso, his back is virtually facing the batsman. His front foot is up around about shoulder height. And, um, you know, it was almost as though his upper body was going to deliver the ball to the square leg umpire. He was that far around. And because he held the ball, when, when he dropped his arm back, his hand stayed on top of the ball. So the back of his hand was facing up. And that meant that he could drop the ball further behind his back than every, anyone I'd ever seen. Most people, when they drop the ball back, they in the old-fashioned bowling actions, they the back of the hand was facing the ground. 
and there's a limit to how far that can go back. Whereas Tomo, with his hand on top of the ball, could put the ball much further behind him than anyone else. So it was an absolute slingshot from the bottom of his hand drop, which was down almost at knee height behind his back leg. That coming over was really like a slingshot. And Tomo was only, when I say only, he was six foot one. But because of his action, he got up and over his front leg better than anyone I've ever seen. And he, he transformed himself into someone who was more like six foot four. So the height that he got was absolute maximum height that he could manage. And the bounce was that he could generate from a length was what separated him from other bowlers. He was physically fit and strong but he is the most flexible white person that I've ever seen. Even at 40 years of age, I saw him sit on the floor and put his right foot on his right shoulder and he'd take that one down and then he could pick his left foot up and put it on his left shoulder. I've never seen anyone other than a young gymnast do anything similar to that. So I used to imitate his bowling action in the nets from time to time and I could bowl faster with Tomo's action than I could bowl with my action, but I could only do it for an over or so. The physical cost was enormous. The effort and the energy that was expended was much greater than a normal bowling action. So if one wasn't as fit, strong and flexible as Jeff Thompson, it couldn't be sustained. The other story that is quite remarkable is that during World Series cricket, the first year of World Series cricket, Tomo was contracted or was approached by uh, Kerry Packer and agreed to terms. But unfortunately, he was still tied up on a commercial contract, not a cricket contract, that um, with a radio station who wouldn't release him to play World Series cricket. So he wasn't able to play cricket in the first year of World Series cricket. During that time, we were in Perth and Kerry Packer decided to organise a fast bowling contest to see who was the quickest. So he set up, had it set up at, uh, in Perth and had the um, radar gun set up to test the bowlers. So you had people like Garth LaRue, Imran Khan, Michael Holding, Andy Roberts, uh, probably a few others if I stopped and thought about it, um, Colin Croft and uh, Joel Garner were others. Um, Tomo was at the bar with Kerry Packer as this um, fast smiling test was was undergone. undergone. And uh, Kerry said to Tomo, why aren't you out there? And Tomo said, well, I'm not playing. And Kerry said, doesn't matter. This is not part of the playing side of it. So you can go and have a bowl. Tomo went out there in a pair of running shoes and was clocked at 160 kilometres an hour. And nobody else on that day, I think Michael Holding might have got into the low 150s. Anyway, uh, many years later, I saw Brett Lee clocked at 160 and I saw Sean Tate clocked at 160. But from the visual aspect of it, I didn't believe that they were anywhere near as fast as Jeff Thompson. 
So I was at a function in Adelaide um, a few years later uh, for the South Australian Police Force and the head of highway patrol was at this function. So I asked him, what is the difference between the radar of today and the radar of days gone by? And he said, in what context? And I explained to him about the, the bowling contest in Perth. And when I described how it was set up, he said, well, what they were doing, they were testing the bowlers at the end of carry. In other words, as it got past the batsman. So Tomo was being clocked at 160 as the ball went past the batsman. The bowlers that I saw clocked at 160, Tate and Lee, were clocked as the ball left their hand. So what, according to this fellow from the South Australian Police Force, if um, Tomo was clocked at 160 at the end of carry, it would have been closer to 170 as it left his hand. And that, to me, is the difference. Tomo was at least 10 kilometres an hour faster than any other bowler that I've seen. And that allied to his bounce, well, with his bounce, made him the most difficult bowler that I've ever seen and you know I batted against him in first class cricket and I batted against him in the nets and when he was bowling at his fastest uh, he was most uncomfortable to face particularly uh -huh. for a right-hander because he tended to come back into the into the batsman I'm sure there's no shortage of those kind of stories like people who faced him uh, so Tomo I think there's a very direct correlation for the helmets uh, the arrival of helmets in cricket. So talk about that. You saw that come through the sport. How big was that uh, addition to the game? Uh, I know you've talked about or written about recently after the Will Pukowski, uh concussion. So combine that, uh, you know, in retrospect, what helmets meant. And then if you want to talk about how today uh, you believe, you know, coaches are not teaching the youngsters how to play the short ball. So, uh, you know, enlighten us with, you know, that comparison. Well, the helmets came about because of you know, World Series cricket, no doubt. Um, the first year of World Series cricket, we weren't we were banned from playing any other form of cricket, and we weren't allowed to play on the main cricket grounds. So we had to play at non-traditional cricket grounds, which meant that Kerry Packer had to put turf pitches into these non-traditional grounds, um, and to put permanent pitches in wasn't conceivable on some of the grounds. Uh, two of them were Australian football grounds, so uh, that wasn't going to be acceptable. And so he had to develop the drop-in pitch. He had a fellow called John Maley, who was the uh, was a, a young groundsman at the time, um, who developed the drop-in pitches. And, uh, you know, John Maley was a, a genius and developed these drop-in pitches. The, the drop-in pitch at the Sydney showground was the fastest, bounciest pitch that I ever played on. Um, faster and bouncier than the Wacker ever was. Um, the other pitches weren't quite as successful, and, and that was mainly because of the, the local soil was different in each place. And so each pitch, you know, was reflective of, of the different soil. The pitch in Perth was probably the, the worst of the four or five dropping pitches that John developed. Um, 
and became quite dangerous uh, as the game went on because it tended to crack uh, and big cracks appeared in the in the pitches and I know Ian Chapel had a, got a broken hand in Perth and Barry Richards got a broken hand in Perth from balls that just took off a length. So during one of the games, Australia versus the rest of the world, uh, we were bowling and uh, England came out to bat. I think we'd batted first. And uh, Dennis Amos walked out to bat with a motorbike helmet, which was that got a mixed reception. Generally from us, it was mirth. Um, because it looked just so ridiculous walking out to bat with a motorbike helmet. Um, they, yeah, they're big and bulky and with the visor dropped, it must have been like being in a soundproof booth. Um, it would have been quite incredible underneath it. So um, that was amusing enough. But then Tony Gregg came out to bat and he looked like a, I'm not quite sure what he looked like, but it, you know, on a long, lanky body and this big helmet on the top of it. Um, looked out of place and you know Greggy was um, the sort of opponent that loved to have a bit of a chat and loved to have a bit of a, a, a contest um, and so uh, Dennis Lilly was bowling at the, the time that Greggy came into bat and that was just like a red rag to a ball when he saw the helmet uh, I think Dennis just decided that he had to hit, try and hit the helmet which eventually he did um, Greggy had to have the visor up. He couldn't bat with the visor down. Um, so at least we could hear what he was saying. And so there was a bit of back chat between uh, Dennis and, and Tony about the helmets. Um, but when Dennis hit Greggy on the helmet, he suggested that he might like to go to the panel beater and get it repaired. So we, we got quite a bit of amusement out of it. But funnily enough, you know, Tony Gregg had been quite a productive player up to that point. From the day he put the helmet on, he hardly made another run. And I think what it signaled to the bowlers was that he was uncomfortable with short pitch bowling. And from that point on, even though he'd received quite a bit of short pitch bowling before that, he received a lot more. And, um, you know, it showed that he was a little bit unsure of himself when when the fast bowlers were bowling no actually i have Go a follow-up question uh, sorry uh, i yeah. read the article too uh, when you talk about technique and how helmet has uh, taken away i think you know the ability to uh you know play those kind of shots so you think with tony's example you think the protection kind of uh made him go away from playing aggressive uh, you know uh, batting against fast bowling is that uh, is that what you're alluding to well, I think there's a number of aspects to helmets and short pitch bowling. Um, firstly, learning to bat without helmets, you had to learn very early on the correct technique to avoid getting hit. And, you know, I played first class in international cricket for the best part of 20 years. Um, I saw very few people hit because you couldn't afford to get hit. So the the first thing you learned as a young batsman was to make sure that with a short ball, you got your head to the offside of the ball so that if you missed it, it missed you. You certainly didn't try and hook with the ball in line with your face and you didn't hook with the ball outside off stump because there was a good chance you were going to deflect it onto your, onto your face if it, if it hit the front side of the bat. 
mean, I did get hit once from the back of the bat on a slow wet wicket. I'd gone past it and it came off the back of the bat and deflected into my face. But, um, you know, I probably saw six people hit in the head in my whole career. I'm, you know, I've seen games where six people have been hit in the one game. Now, what that's telling me, there's, there's a number of factors in this. Firstly, the self-preservation is not as important because if you get hit in the helmet, um, it's not likely to be as damaging as if you get hit without a helmet. So I think players have got um, have become perhaps a little more comfortable and uh, you know taking risks that they wouldn't have taken without a helmet. I mean, I can remember Matthew Hayden walking down the pitch to fast bowlers. Now, without helmets, you would never have thought of doing that. So I think there is some risky play that um, that takes place that is part of the reason that uh, more people are hit. Secondly, I think learning to bat with a helmet on your head changes the dynamics, uh, changes the balance points, and therefore... Um, players and, and those helmets are, are very heavy and those motorbike helmets the initial ones would have been very heavy so I think in Tony Gregg's case it changed his balance it changed his ability to move quickly and it also alerted bowlers to the fact that he was uncomfortable against short pitch bowling so there were a number of factors there for young players of today I think it's more about just not learning to bat without a helmet and therefore making sure that you get your body into good positions before you play hook shots. Um, I think the, you know, I, I remember when I first put a helmet on, it wasn't a motorbike helmet. It was a, a converted um, um, a, 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 um, a horse riding helmet. Um, so it, it wasn't as heavy as the motorbike helmets, but it was still much heavier than a cricket cap. And, I didn't like the helmet from the point of view that I felt that it changed my balance and it made it harder for me to move quickly. It made it harder for me to move my head quickly. It's amazing how fast you can move your head when you have to. There were one or two times in my career where I thought I was going to be hit, but somehow I managed to avoid the ball. The The thing I learned very early in my career, and our father used to, work us over with short balls to teach us how to to deal with with short balls when we were young so that was the first thing the other thing you know in playing games in the backyard with my older brother who was bigger and stronger and older he could aim at the ridge at the end of our practice we get then get balls up around chest and head height and then my first series for Australia against England in 70, 1970, 71, John Snow was their best fast bowler. And John was very accurate with his short balls. He, he rarely wasted them. They rarely went over your head. They rarely went down leg side. They were generally at sort of armpit height and you had to deal with them. And, and we all got into trouble in that series from short balls from John Snow and at the end of that series Ian and I decided we had to learn a little bit more about how to deal with short pitch bowling so we spent a few weeks in the off season practicing on a cement wicket and we used baseballs because we we played baseball so we had a supply of baseballs and the baseball bounced more like a cricket ball 
off the cement surface, you know, more like a cricket ball on turf. A cricket ball on cement tended to skid, whereas the baseball bounced a bit more. And so we stood at sort of 15 or 16 metres and just threw short balls at each other and tried to pin each other to the back of the net to learn how to deal with, with fast bowling. And the lesson that I came away with from that was that you couldn't afford to stand still playing short balls. You had to make sure that you adjusted your body, which generally meant getting the back foot back and across towards off stump so that you could swivel the upper part of the body to keep the arms clear. If you got caught with your hands in front of your body, you had nowhere to go. And I'd found once or twice in the series against Jon Snow that I'd been caught in that position and it was very difficult to, um, to combat the ball if it kept rising. So once we understood that if you watched the ball, it was hard to get hit. You could move very quickly if you had to. So the first thing that a young batsman needs to learn is to make sure he watches the ball. And, and, and most people you see that get hit generally duck, their, duck and turn their head away. And they're the guys that tend to get hit. And so, you know, that, that early coaching and learning to deal with the short ball, and that was the other thing our father insisted was that we played with and practiced with a hard ball so that we found out about dealing with the hard ball. Now, there's no doubt that from a safety point of view, uh, with young players, you can use softer balls and there are sort of different types of balls that are hard enough to get good bounce but they're not going to do serious damage I think we should play junior cricket with modified balls so that the young batsmen can learn to bat without a helmet if they learn to bat without a helmet and get the, the correct technique then putting a helmet on and adjusting to that shouldn't be a problem uh- just on that topic again, as a fan out of me, you know, was curious. So who are some of the best practitioners uh, of that kind of a shot, like the, you know, taking on the short ball? Uh, who are some of the best guys you've seen do this? Take on, you know, fearless short bowling, technically and oh, also look, effectiveness. Think, yeah, all of the good players through my uh, career prior to helmets were good, generally good players of the, the short ball, um, Viv Richards, Barry Richards, you know, most of the West Indian players, Desmond Haynes, um, Gordon Greenwich, Ian Chappell. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, any, you could pick any of, uh, you know, Rowan Canai, Gary Sobers, obviously. Gary's the best batsman that I've ever seen and the best all-round cricketer that I've ever seen. Um, you know, Jarvid Dad was a very good player of uh, fast, short-pitch bowling probably one of the best from the subcontinent in that period uh, against short pitch bowling because he genuinely liked short pitch bowling. It was his strength and he encouraged fast bowlers to bowl short to him. So, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, he was very good at it. Ricky Ponting, uh, you know, post, you know, in, in the era with helmets, I think Ponting has been one of the, the best players of short pitch bowling that, uh, that I've seen, but most of the best players are, are pretty pretty good at it sure all right so let's go back to the book i'm falling off track because you know i don't you know i'm losing my uh you know focus here because you know of course you in the house you know and i want to ask so many questions there's an interesting phase in the book when you and kim hughes 
swap captaincy. You give up the captaincy, but the Australian board asks you to take it back for different reasons. One time, I think he's on paternity leave. But uh, talk about that phase, because most of us who've seen Australia in the last two decades, even from a distance, we always thought like it was about rebuilding. And uh, when the time is right, look at Steve Waugh and Ponting, you know, the transition was always seamless. While, you know, there's not a knock on your captaincy, you have said, okay, I don't want a captain, I just want to play. But just talk us, uh, talk us through that period that you gave up the captaincy and they still give it back to you at Hughes's expense. And did that hamper his growth as a captain? Well, I, I got to a point in my career where, you know, it was hard to justify continuing to play. We weren't getting paid very much, even after World Series cricket. I was making more money off the field, you know, in my business than I was um, playing cricket. We had a young family, so I, I knew that I was coming to the end of my career, but I wasn't ready to retire at that point. So I made a decision that um, I wouldn't tour overseas anymore. Um, I couldn't justify being away for months at a time, but at least I could continue playing cricket in Australia where I enjoyed playing and uh, you know it was only going to be sort of three or four months of the year uh, on the road rather than uh, many months of the year on the road so once I made that decision you know I, I didn't go on overseas tours so they had to choose another captain and they chose Kim to, to be captain when I gave the captaincy away I didn't expect to get it back um, you know in fact I was pretty much at the stage where I was just happy to play. I'd, I'd captain the side probably 30 or so times. Um, you know, it uh, it had been good fun, but it was also taxing. So I was quite happy just to be a player. And, and if I wasn't going to tour overseas, it seemed to be the natural thing to do. But each time I made myself available, the, the cricket board chose me to be captain. And, and I certainly wasn't at the point of refusing the the captaincy, if you like. I think without, you know, I certainly don't want to denigrate Kim as a, as a person, as a cricketer. I, I like it, like him. I like him as a person and I love watching him bat and I love watching him bat from close quarters at the other end. Uh, and I'm a good friend of his to this day. So I don't want to um, you know, make any comment that is seemingly critical of, of Kim. Having said that, what the board obviously saw was that you know he he wasn't um, doing the job to their satisfaction. Now whether that hampered his development as a captain, one will never know. But um, you know I think had they been happy with his captaincy, uh, they would have continued um, giving it to him, and I would have been quite happy to play on, under Kim as I did on on a number of occasions, not least of all in my last series as a Test cricketer. Um, one thing, you know, from Kim's point of view was that, you know, he was a very, he is a very emotional individual. And I think at times perhaps that emotion, um, you know, hampered his uh, decision-making and uh, that was possibly why the board, um, you know, kept giving it back to me when I was, uh, when I was available. But other than that, not having spoken to any of the board members about it, I'm only making an assumption. So I, I can't really give you much detail. Sure. And during those chapters, you also mentioned twice, I think, in those two or three years, your good buddy Rodney Marsh, I think, lost out the captaincy vote to Kim Hughes. 
And uh, in your opinion, you know, of course, the Packer years had a role. His closeness to your brother Ian Chappell had a role in the, you know, selectors or whatever the however the vote went. But do you think he's one of the best players not to captain Australia? You played with him pretty much your entire career. To talk about that at length. Yeah, look, I have no doubt that if Rod had been made captain, he would have continued playing Test cricket for a, a number of years more, um, and I'm sure he would have done a very good job. He was my vice-captain throughout my captaincy career and was a great support to me and, and you know, a great um, person to be able to talk to about situations as they developed. You know, wicketkeepers in, are in a great position behind the stumps to see everything and hear everything. And I think, um, you know, Broad, from that point of view, was, um, was very good. He captained Western Australia on a number of occasions and, and, and did it uh, very well. You know, I, I think if Kim was ever to have, you know, succeeded as, as a captain, maybe waiting a few more years and, and being vice-captain to Rod for a few years could, could well have um, helped him in, in that regard. I never quite understood it, uh, you know, other than I think that there was a, a, a little bit of payback in some of those decisions um, post-World Series cricket because the cricket board administrators after World Series cricket were the same guys as before World Series cricket. And, and I think they took it rather badly that, um, you know, we had opted to go and play World Series cricket for some very good reasons. Um, and, you know, a few players didn't, after World Series cricket, probably should have played more test cricket than they did. That uh, you know the the board seemed to lean towards um, players that hadn't been involved in World Series cricket, and I think Rod Marsh was a, a victim of that. I mean, the the description that I was given that you know Rod had been involved in World Series cricket and he was too close to Ian didn't hold water because I'd been involved in World Series cricket and I was Ian's brother, so I don't quite get that argument. But other than you know there was a little bit of vindictiveness in not giving it to him. Oh. No, that's again uh, a very important phase in you know in Australian cricket and in that book. I would heavily endorse you know anyone who's listening to check out Fierce Focus. It came out a few years ago, but it's still a very good read if you want to follow Greg's career and how Australian cricket evolved over the years. Uh, also in the book, Greg, you mention about Alan Border. Uh, he was a nervous bloke, but who changed gears when he was stepped into bat. So there's a chapter where you're talking about talking to him to mentor him and even offer him how to compartmentalize leadership duties and batting prep. So elaborate on that. We all know there's a lot of literature on batting and captaincy, how it elevates some players and some players when they get the captaincy, maybe it's a burden. Uh, so look at through at the lens of some of the modern greats like Ponting, Clark, Coley, Smith, and uh, talk about, you know, how one can compartmentalize because, you know, as fans, we hear about that, but what is really going on there that sometimes can take you, you know, off your game? Yeah, look, it's an important aspect of it. And I think those who've successfully done captaincy and, and continued to perform as, as batsmen have all learned to compartmentalise. And it's not as complicated as it sounds. You know, concentration is the ability to focus on what's important at this moment. And when you're batting, what's important is the ball leaving the bowler's hand. So the, the trick is to train yourself mentally to be in the right place as the ball leaves the bowler's hands. Now, with the captaincy, 
it's no different. You know, as the bowler is running up, you're a batsman. In between balls, you can be captain. And it's the same in the field. You know, most captains generally finish, finish up fielding in slip catching positions. Slip catching is no different from batting. You know, in between balls, you relax as much as you can, but you learn, the, you know, the technique of concentration and, and having a mental routine that brings you back to the ball at the right time. So from my point of view, you know, batting became quite simple once I understood that all I had to do was concentrate one ball at a time. And if I could concentrate for one ball, I could concentrate for a thousand balls because all I had to do was concentrate on one ball at a time. But the trick was at the end of each delivery was to switch off, have a few seconds maybe if a spin bowler was bowling, that's all you would get, a few seconds break just to relax the, the concentration and then come back to the bowler at the top of his mark and then make sure that at the point of release all you are seeing is the ball leave the bowler's hand. And so that trick became very important once you became captain because that's all you had to do was um, you know concentrate for the few seconds you know the name of the book fierce focus came from my sort of rudimentary um, idea that there are three levels of concentration for me there were certainly three levels of concentration there was a level of concentration that you used as you waited to go into bat so you're watching what's going on very closely, but you're not emotionally involved in it. If I was sitting there concentrating for the batsman in front of me, I was going to exhaust myself and exhaust my mental energy that I would need when I was there. So if I found myself sitting, waiting to go into bat, worrying about the batsman getting out or that this particular bowler was bowling, then I was in the wrong space. I had to be an observer, but detached emotionally from what was going on. So I was noticing that this guy was a right arm fast bowler that bowled out swingers generally. This guy's a left-handed fielder and a left-handed thrower. This guy's got a weak arm. All of those things I noticed, but I wasn't emotionally involved in the play. Now, once you go out to bat, that same level of concentration is between balls and between overs. Once you're on strike, that level of concentration changes up a level to, so for me, the waiting to go into bat or between overs was a level that I called awareness. I was aware of what was going on, but I wasn't emotionally involved in it. Then when the bowler got to the top of his mark, there was a fine focus. Now I was only interested in the bowler. As he ran out to bowl, I would watch his face because I found that I learned things from the bowler's expression. Bowlers gave things away by their facial expression. But once the bowler got into his load up, once he got to back foot landing, I would switch from his face to where the ball was going to leave his hand because at the point of the ball leaving his hand, that is where I had to be engaged fiercely. And that fierce focus would only last for the second or so that it took the ball to travel to me and the play to be finished. And then I would drop back into the level of awareness, which meant that I was 
detached emotionally, but I was still aware of what was going on around me. And once I understood that that was the key to batting, I would cycle through those three levels of concentration for every ball. Not some balls, not most balls, every ball. And if you made the mistake of not being with the bowler and seeing the ball as it left the bowler's hand, you were missing most of the information that was going to help you with line, length, swing, spin, all of the things that were going to allow you to make the finer adjustments as the ball came down. But length and line was established as the ball left the bowler's hand. The angle and how it left the bowler's hand gave you length and line. Anyone who thinks they watch fast bowlers, watch the ball all the way down, or is trying to watch the ball all the way down is going to have problems because the brain doesn't work like that. The faster bowlers, the ball is traveling too fast for you to watch it all the way. So the brain tends to cascade its vision. So as the ball leaves the hand, the angle tells you that this is short. The brain will then leap ahead to where it thinks the ball is going to land and you pick the ball up again. So it's, uh, there's a lot going on, particularly when you've got someone like Jeff Thompson or Michael Holding or anyone of, of that sort of speed, Jeff, uh, sorry, um, Dennis Lilly, Andy Roberts, Malcolm Marshall, Wazim Akram, any of those guys, they're bowling too fast for you to track the ball the whole way. You've got less than half a second from the time it leaves the bowler's hand till it reaches you and it takes nearly that much time to make a decision. So you need to be picking up information, even in the bowler's load up, he's giving you information that might indicate that this is a bouncer or this is, you know, a fuller ball. So all of that is helping you to assess line and length. So compartmentalizing becomes easy once you understand that, because then you can put the captaincy out of your mind when you're batting for the, time that takes for the bowler to bowl the ball in between balls you can think about declarations or whether run rates or whatever you need to think about but once the bowler is back at the top of his mark you've got to be with him and nowhere else wow so it's uh, again uh, <laughs> the the response is pretty fascinating and a little above you know my knowledge of the game but what i gather is every cricketer might have their own fierce focus especially the champion ones how they approach the game so from that yep. lens, how do you look at a Virat Kohli? Like, you know, modern cricket is different. Uh, what he's able to do today, he's playing three formats and he plays the rigors of IPL. Of course, he's not playing anywhere close to first-class games or any cricketer doesn't play first-class games. Either you just play tests or you play internationals. So how do you look at his focus and the kind of workload today's international cricket has to offer? And uh, what is your report card on Kohli? Like, you know, you said we haven't even seen the best of him. So measure for the listeners here his captaincy and batsmanship. He's, you know, one of the, the best batsmen of, of all time, no doubt. He's certainly, you know, one of the best three or four batsmen of, of his era. Um, I've spoken to him about his mental routines and they're not dissimilar to what I've just described. Everybody will have their own nuances to how they go about it, but it's the same thing. Uh, you know, he wants to be with the bowler and see the ball leave the bowler's hand. So he's developed a routine that allows him to do that. He also does a lot of visualisation. You know, there's a limit to how much physical training you can do. Um, 
some players like to hit more balls than others. But, um, yeah, the, the best training that I ever had was lying in my bed at night before I went to sleep, just visualising myself playing against Joel Gunner or, um, you know, whoever, whichever team was uh, going to be playing against the next day. Um, you know, that's the most powerful training you can do is, you know, visualising yourself playing well because if you can add some emotion to it, the brain doesn't know the difference between a pretend session and a real session. And Virat, I've heard him talking about his visualisation program and, and, you know, he's he's at a very high level of, um, you know, understanding of how important that is. It is the most important training you can do. You will never have a perfect physical training session, but you can have a perfect visualisation session. And the, the difference between being in form and out of form is only a state of mind. If you believe you're in form, you'll be in form. If you believe you're out of form, you'll be out of form. And it can change in one ball. One delivery can do something that discombobulates you and, and throws you off balance mentally and you can be instantly out of form because then you're not seeing the ball. And Virat does that as well as anyone, but all of the good players I've spoken to had their own method of, of doing that. You know, Steve Smith doesn't sleep much during, um, you know, particularly during test series. He's often heard in his room at night, you know, they can, people who have rooms alongside him or above or below him talk about the tap, tap, tap. They wake up in the middle of the night and all they can hear is tap, tap, tap of him tapping the bat and, you know, visualise, well, pretending he's, he's batting in a, in a test match. You can't underestimate how important that work that players do in their own mind has on their, on their success. You know, people of you may remember Matthew Hayden the day before a test match would go out onto the pitch and he would squat in the batting position and just imagine himself batting against the opposition that he was playing against. Now, people saw Matthew Hayden hit a lot of balls in training, but and they put his success down to that. But, you know, I reckon that on balance, the work that he did in his visualisation sessions were even more important than, than what he did in his physical sessions. Not everybody is as big and strong as Matthew Hayden. I couldn't hit as many balls as Matthew Hayden hit. It, it would have broken me physically. So for me to be able to do visualisation sessions lying on my back in the bedroom was, um, was really important. And I think Virat does a lot of that. You know, his ability to switch formats is is exceptional but he, he does it with ease because he doesn't play very differently in 20 over cricket as he does in test cricket the urgency might be a little greater but his shot making is not dissimilar in test cricket to one day cricket he may use a bit more elevation a bit more often in a white ball game than he does in a red ball game but technically there's not much difference and i think that's important and one of the reasons why he does it so effortlessly. Yeah, that's why he's uh, such a rare talent and, you know, is uh, so prolific in all formats of the game. So let's make a quick uh, segue here into, you know, something 
uh, Australian cricket is facing right now. You know, we've used to seeing like great Australian batting lineups. Uh, of course, it's a very tough balancing act to play different formats. So do you think Australia has taken, has to reassess like how they, uh, how they will, you know, produce future great test batting talents because India has a great template, even though we play a lot of IPL and there's a lot of white ball cricket. They are the Pujaras, Rahanes, and they're the Gills, Rohit Sharma. So what has gone wrong in Australia and how do you see it getting rectified? You know, if you take Steve Smith out, I mean, there's not many great test players or, or, or red ball players that are around as great as David Warner is. I mean, he's not in the Steve Smith class. That's what at least fans say. So what does the future look like? You know, you've been part of the national talent director. You resigned that position a few years ago. So what is the pipeline looking and is it a serious issue? I know I've asked a few questions there, but address it the way you feel is more appropriate. Yeah, look, it, it's probably harder to be, to develop as a young test batsman than ever before because of the proliferation of white ball cricket. Um, I grew up in an era when there was only one format. So we focused all of our energy and mental effort was focused on becoming a good test batsman. That's no longer the case. And in fact, in Australia, there's so little red ball cricket played that I worry about the future of Australian test cricket and, and batsmanship generally in, in red ball cricket in, in this country, because we're not playing much of it. We, in in previous eras, and particularly in the era in which I played, we played 80% of the time and we trained 20% of the time. I think that has reversed where young players now are practising in the nets about 80% of the time and they're playing 20% of the time. I don't think you develop good batsmanship in the nets. And I think the proliferation of coaching in this era is also a challenge for the, for the game. I grew up and played in an era when there weren't coaches and yet there was a lot of coaching that went on, but much of it was peer-to-peer coaching. If I had a problem with my batting, I would talk to other batsmen in my dressing room who were playing against the same bowler. So if I had a problem with bowler A, I would talk to some of the other experienced batsmen you know, about what do you do when you're batting against this guy? That was powerful intelligence that you could pick up. You know, having been a coach, sitting in the dressing room 100 metres away from the action is not a place to understand fully what's going on. You know, apart from the fact that you're in the dressing room with the guys and you've been part of their training program during the week, once they walk out the door... I'm no better place than the person sitting in the stands other than maybe I've watched a bit more cricket and therefore I understand a bit more maybe, but the finer detail, you know, when I was coaching India, the first person I wanted to talk to when the team came off the field was MS Dhoni because he was in the hot seat. He was there right in the middle. And I needed to understand if what I thought I was seeing was what was actually going on. And so it was always handy to have that extra information come back from off the field. I think we've got, you know, cricket has a problem in that I grew up and I was encouraged to work out how to bat for myself. Our father was our our main coach early on, but he taught us, he told us what he wanted us to do, not how to do it. 
we worked out for ourselves how to do it. So in other words, you know, if the ball's pitched up here, I want to see you hit it through the covers. But we worked out how best to get it through the covers. And therefore, Ian and Trevor and I all had slightly different um, styles because we had worked out for ourselves what worked best for us. I think what we're seeing in cricket now is that there are individuals who think that they are the holders of all the wisdom and the player has to come to me to get the answers. If the player has to go to someone else to get the answers, he's in the wrong place, then he probably won't make it. The best players have worked out for themselves how to bat or to bowl and what to do in certain circumstances. They have become their own best coach. So I think coaching is over, uh, overestimated what a coach can do. I think there are little bits and thing, pieces, little nuances that you can help players with. But if I've got to, you know, particularly if you're coaching at the top level, if, if you've got to, you know, rebuild someone, someone's got a problem. And it's probably the player because um, if he's not fully on top of his own game, then he's not going to be a Coley or a Smith or, you know, a Warner or whoever, um, you know, Williamson or whoever you want to uh, throw out there. So it's really important from a coaching point of view that you encourage players to work things out for themselves. And if, if they can do that, then there's a good chance that, um, that they can make it. Sure. So this brings me to a very fascinating quote from one of your interviews to Wisden. Uh, the year is 2018. You were in India with Australian A-team. And I'm going to just put the quote here, beginning of quote, we all try and go too fast in some ways. You get all this intellectual property that you feel you want to download as fast as you can. And you do realize that all you generally do is that you overwhelm people, end of quote. So again, this ties in with what you just said. So has coaching become more complicated because of all the formats? Is it uh, too much information? Uh, what is your take? Because, you know, you've had some of the best vantage points, you know, be it coaching in India, then talent director in Australia, Australia A team. So I think Kohli and Smiths are the big example, but how is it, you know, detrimental at the uh, at the junior level or, or at the formative level? Yeah, it's a, it is a challenge because all young coaches and, um, you know, all new coaches anyway, and I know when I first started coaching, um, it's very easy to fall into the trap that you've got all this intellectual property and you want to download it as quickly as you can because you think that that's going to help the players that you're working with but in fact it generally overwhelms them because they're not ready for it it's delivering the right message at the right time in the right way is is the art of good good coaching and being able to recognize good coaching moments where there's something that you know there's a message that you want to get to a player um, but if you walk up to them cold and and deliver the message a, it's probably not going to be well received. B, it may, it therefore is not going to be taken on board. But if you can use a, an incident in the game, a situation in the game, um, as an example to someone, probably slightly removed, particularly for a batsman, if a batsman's just got out, that's not the time to deliver the message because they're generally emotionally upset and therefore they're not in, a, in the right space to... to to take on board a message, well-intentioned or not. So it's what you learn as a coach is that 
if you think you've got something to say, think twice and and speak less. You know, you the less you can say, the the better. So you've got to learn the right time and the right way to deliver the message, and it has to be as succinct as possible. And you soon work out which players, what level of feedback they can they can handle. Some players, you can give it to them, you know, unfettered, just raw material, and they'll take it and they'll take it on board and they'll deal with it. There are others you've got to you've got to feed it to them slowly, and you know just ease it ease it into them sometimes just you know maybe you know soften the message as soft as possible um you know i've I've mentored a lot of young coaches in in recent years and i've often had to say to these guys who are generally at least first class cricketers and often international cricketers coming back into youth programs and they're trying to deliver messages that the players are not ready for and I've had to, to say to a number of coaches, just understand that you've played cricket at the university level. These guys are still at primary school. You have to get down to their level because they're not coming to your level. So you've got to make sure that you couch the message in a way that they can understand it. You know, I've heard Shane Warne talk about leg spin bowling. It's unbelievable. It is just so fascinating. I spoke to Muralithran about spin bowling. They were at a level way beyond university level. You know, I mean, they were PhDs. They were, you know, they were professors of their art. And I've heard Shane speak to a group of young leg spin bowlers, and it's just fascinating. But they're not ready for that information. You know, if you took a primary school student and put them into a university curriculum, they would struggle. And it's the same for a young cricketer trying to, uh, you know, get to the level that Shane Warne was at. And that, that's not meant to be a criticism of Shane Warne. It, it just shows you that you, when you're coaching, it's not about talking at the level that you understand. It's about talking at the level that they understand so that you can slowly bring them up to the level that you understand or at least take them to the highest level that they can sure. they can reach you know I, I remember working with um you know with rahul dravid and, and rahul could take whatever you could throw at him he would he wanted more and more information and uh, you know he asked a lot of questions you know Sachin tendulkar asked a lot of questions but some of the players weren't quite so confident and weren't quite so ready for that information. So you couldn't speak to, to those players, particularly younger players in the side, in the same way that you could talk to the Drabids and the, the Tendulkas and the Kumleis, you know, because they were at a very different level. Sure. No, I think uh, you unpacked, again, a lot of things. And when I will be you know, listening to this again, there's a lot to learn. So less is more. That's what I've learned, you know, like what you just said. And you you have a special relationship with Rahul Dravid. How impressed are you with the work he's done in the pipeline for India's future cricketers, India A and at the National Cricket Academy, and then, you know, he's worked with the juniors. So uh, break it down for us, you know, what he's done that doesn't make the naked eye because he's, you know, preparing tomorrow's cricketers under his watch. And, of course, there are a lot of other people involved, but just let's spark, uh, speak at length on Dravid's contribution to uh, the pipeline of Indian cricketers. 
Roald Driver's an exceptional individual. You know, he was a very, very fine player and uh, I think he was a very good captain. Um, he, um, he's, he wants to be part of giving something back to, to Indian cricket and he's got a role that I think he's perfectly suited for. Um, and I think he's doing a wonderful job. Now, he's stolen all of our ideas. He's watched what Australian cricket has done. And, you know, I've had a lot to do with Rahul since, you know, the, my time in India. He's He's been working with India under-19s and India A, and I've been working in that same time with Australia under-19s and Australia A. And we have been, um, you know, opposite each other in different tournaments where the under-19s or the A teams are playing. And, and we always get together and we'll have a meal or two during those, those tournaments. And Rahul is asking questions the whole time. And, yeah, I'm quite happy to share. I, I think cricket is cricket and that we are all in the cricket family. I don't believe that we should be, we Australia should be trying to have any secrets. Um, I, I'm, I've been more than happy to share with, uh, with anyone that wants to know what we do. And Rahul was certainly one who did want to know. And, and I think the messages that he's taken away and which he's implemented and which are working well for Indian cricket is that good players learn to play by playing the game. So the more often they can be playing at a level which is challenging them to get better, the sooner they will get better. You don't hold someone at a level. If you want someone to be a good test cricketer, you don't hold them in the Ranji Trophy for too long. Ranji Trophy is there to identify or for the young players to identify themselves as people who have got a chance to play at the next level. Once they've identified themselves, the sooner you get them to that level, the sooner they will become good players at the higher level. You don't hold them at a level at which they're already competent for too long. Otherwise, they adjust to that level and they start going backwards. So Rahul has, has taken on board that message. Also, that if you want to develop good batsmen, then they must play as much red ball cricket as possible in the development stages. And India, pretty much throughout their youth development programs, are playing red ball cricket. We've gone away from doing that. And I think, going back to one of your earlier questions, we in Australia have a problem. We have stopped doing the things that work and we're doing things that are unproven and I think won't work in the best part. So until we wake up to ourselves, and that might take time, um, sadly, the longer you go in the wrong direction, the longer it takes you to turn it around and get going in the right direction. I think we had a really good development program, but we have outsmarted ourselves or you know, been um, seduced by white ball cricket and 20-over uh, cricket in particular. And there's been a big focus on, on that at our youth development stages and through club cricket and so on. And I think that's taking us in the wrong direction. If test cricket is going to be a part of the future and if test cricket is the major earner, and it still is in Australian cricket, that pays for all of our programs, then we have to focus our attention on developing test cricketers. If we develop good test cricketers, we will find plenty who can play 50 over and 20 over cricket. But if we focus on 50 over and 20 over cricket, we might find one day that we've got no test cricketers, particularly batsmen. And I, I see that day is a lot closer than many people realise. 
I don't know who our next generation of Australian batsmen are. Apart from Pekowski and Green, I don't see any young players in our domestic first-class cricket who are our future test cricketers. There are some playing 20 over cricket and 50 over cricket that you think are very talented, and I do think that we have some, but I'm not sure they're going to be able to adjust to test cricket in trying circumstances. You know, how do you go to Chennai or Ahmedabad and play in the conditions that they had in Ahmedabad a few weeks ago if you haven't had some sort of experience in those conditions against quality bowlers? I don't see how it can happen. And until we realise that in Australian cricket, I think we've got a problem. No, it's a worrisome thing. And let's wrap this up. I wish Australia finds, you know, its ways because a healthy Australia is always good for cricket. So let's wrap this conversation up with a fascinating open letter you wrote to Tim Payne when India was touring Australia. And the letter wasn't too harsh, but I just want to ask you because you've, you know, been a cricketer yourself all your life, then coach and commentator and, you know, columnist. Uh, a lot of these days, I mean, current cricketers take offense to sometimes you see it happening across all countries like a Michael Vaughan or like, you know, I don't want to name names here, but people, uh, former players say something and current players get defensive. You've donned both hats. So what is the balancing act there? Are players too sensitive or are retired players sometimes just, you know, being, uh, they're also not being sensitive. So I don't know, you know, so I was curious when I read that letter and I don't know what uh, relationship you shared with Tim Payne. It wasn't a harsh letter, but it was still pretty much out in the open. So, uh, use that example and just uh, finish this podcast with you know some insights that we'll cherish. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I'm close to to Tim. Um, I've known him for, for many years and have been involved as a as a coach and a mentor and as um, national talent manager um, on tours with him in Australian A teams and and so on. So um, I I wasn't concerned about writing the letter, and in fact, I sent the letter to him. Uh, before it appeared in in the print, because I didn't want it to surprise him. him to read it first time in the media, um, because I do um, I, I do have a good relationship with him and I respect him greatly. So, and I think he's done a terrific job in in the role as captain of the Australian team in recent years. Um, look, I'll, I'll give an example of my own time. I don't remember who wrote the article. I'm not sure that it was necessarily a past player, but in my playing days, I read an article that I thought was unfairly critical. And I, I was railing against that article when um, you know, my brother Ian sort of happened upon me and he said, what's the problem? And I told him and he said, mate, if you don't like it, don't read it. Um, you know, someone else's opinion doesn't really matter. What's more important is what do you think? Now, they, I, I, a similar experience one day during World Series cricket, I was in the dressing room watching the um, broadcast. Richie Benno was making some comment. And again, I you know, was critical of his criticism. I don't know that it was just general, you know, generally at me, but again, you know, Ian said, mate, there's an off button. If you don't like it, turn it off. And, and it was, was good advice. And, and, you know, from one of those experiences, I, I realised that whatever anyone else said wasn't important um, unless you th- thought you could learn from it. So I, I sort of chose one or two 
people whose opinion I respected, and Richie Benno was obviously was, was one of those people, and one or two others who you know were former players. Anyone that wasn't a former player, I I just chose not to read. If I wanted to read something, then you know I would would take notice of what Richie or someone else that I respected said. Otherwise, just ignore it. Um, look, we're all too sensitive at times, particularly when things are directed at us. And and generally, you're you know, you're emotionally involved, and often the criticism comes at a time when you've failed, so you you're not in a great place to accept it. Equally, I two things. Past players are employed for their insights and their opinions. You know, they're not employed just to be nice to everybody. They've got to give an opinion, and sometimes that means being critical. So I think there's got to be a little bit of adulthood on both sides of the equation. Those who are delivering the criticism need just to stop and think a little bit about how it might be received and therefore how you might couch that criticism. But on the other hand, as a player, you've got to accept that, you know, you put your hand up to be in this position. Uh, sometimes that comes with criticism. And I find that the person, and I know in my own case, the person that reacts is reacting because there's a little bit of truth in what's being said. So, you know, I, I think it's, um, it, it's a tough one. Much harder to avoid the media today than ever before with uh, social media and and there's a lot more of it again because of social media. Everyone's a, an expert because you've got a, a a device in your hand and you can hit it on Twitter or Instagram or whatever else, whatever um, platform you you want to use, and you can have your say. Um, even if you turn off your own device, there's always somebody you know, a family or so on, who reads the the criticism. And often, it, you know, I found the people around me were more sensitive to the criticism than I was because I've accepted that when I go into that area, that the downside of it is I'm going to be criticised from time to time, whereas your family and friends haven't necessarily made that bargain and they're just sitting there and they're hit by the, the ricochet, if you like it's often harder for those around you to deal with it than it is for the individual. But look, I think as a player, you've got to accept that past players are there for their opinion and occasionally you're not going to like it. You better just get used to it because it's going to be a regular occurrence, I would think. Sure. And the roles will change. Today's present will be tomorrow's, you know, past and, and whatnot. Well, that's, that's, that's <laughs> a very interesting point because a lot of the guys that are in the media and being critical today are the ones who complained about past players criticizing in the past. But the fact of the matter is when you're employed in the media, you're employed for your expertise and you're employed for your opinion. And that doesn't mean that you're always going to be nice to people. But as I said before, I think as someone who has been guilty of being perhaps a little harshly critical of someone at, at, from time to time, just be a little bit, conscious of how it might be received at the other end um, when you when you do criticize absolutely so that's greg chapel for you uh, i learned quite a lot i'm honored again i said sharing the space with greg greg thank you for sp uh, sparing so much time i know i asked for an hour we've gone easily 15 to 20 minutes over uh, i hope i didn't waste your time i'm glad you made the show 
Thank you very much. My pleasure, Sakim. Um, nice to talk to you.